Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. As we continue our journey through the book of Isaiah, if you'd turn tonight to Isaiah chapter 9, and while you're turning there, remind yourself who Isaiah is writing to. He's writing to the Jewish people. They're in captivity uh, in the city of Babylon. Uh, They still have the northern kingdoms, which are about to face uh, a onslaught from the Assyrian army, but these are God's chosen people. They're the people to whom God made the covenants with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're the apple of God's eye. God loves the Jewish people. He loved them then, he loves them now. And so as you read these words, as we study this chapter The Lord is about to turn the corner here, and he's about to announce judgment. But before he does, he reminds the children of Israel of the coming son, the Messiah. The one who would be able to set them free from the bondage. The one who would break the chains would be the chain breaker. The one who would make the yoke easy and the burden light. This is a very familiar passage to most of you, especially verse 6 here in chapter 9, because it's one of our favorite Christmas verses. Amen? For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And it gives this description that universally, without contest, the Jewish rabbis have believed was that beautiful picture of the coming Messiah. And yet, even though they understood who the Messiah was and who he would be, they still wandered off in rebellion. And so this is a warning that sometimes that familiarity that we have with the Word, and sometimes our understanding even of the Bible itself, unless we are doers of the Word, if we are only hearers of the Word, Uh, it can really bring even a stricter judgment of the Lord on our lives. Because when we know to do good and do not do it, Scripture says, God's got a problem with that. And so the Lord, uh, I believe, will give us this beautiful picture, first beginning with this child with these incredible names. And then we'll turn the corner and see what the Lord is going to allow in the lives of the children of Israel. So would you pray with me? We'll pick up here in verse 1. And all of chapter 9 tonight. Father, we thank you that the Savior has come. That, Lord, we who tonight have already believed on his name, have received Christ into our lives, have accepted that grace gift from you, Jesus. Eternal life, because the bread of life has come into our lives. Lord, we are a grateful people. Maybe there's some tonight that have yet to come to know you, Lord. We pray that your gospel would be made known to them. 
And so we ask that you bless your word, encourage us, strengthen us, uh, admonish us, Lord, change us, please, into your image. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1, Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when he at first lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in the Galilee of the Gentiles. And so first we see that the Lord is being very, very, very specific here who this pertains to. And the reason this passage becomes so picture perfect for us is we're actually studying in Luke's gospel exactly where Jesus did his first ministry. Where was it? Along the way of the sea and the Galilee of the Gentiles. And so this light that was going to come was going to come to a very specific place that the Jewish people knew about almost 700 years before Jesus was born. And so God is giving them clues, insights, ways that they could understand who Messiah is, where he would do his initial ministry, and it would be those people in that exact region, in the region of the Galilee of the Gentiles, in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, along the Via Maris, the way of the sea, that that light would come. Where did Jesus do almost all of his miracles and where was the light first exposed? It was exactly there. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now remember that when Messiah comes, that region of the world was ruled by Rome. It was, in fact, a Roman tetrarchy. It was a quarter of that region that was ruled over by Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. And so it was a region of darkness. The capital city of that region was Tiberias. That was also in the Galilee of the Gentiles. Upon them that light has shined for you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy, and they rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken off the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. The children of Israel, from the time that they went into the land, as Joshua and Caleb stood on the border of the land at Kadesh Barnea and they looked into the land and they saw nothing but giants. From that moment until they returned to the land and even unto this day, the Jewish people have lived in existence of scrapping for absolutely every second of their existence. And the Lord is saying that this one who will come will deliver them from the rod of the oppressor. One of the most amazing things that Jesus said, he said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he will surely die, 
yet he or she shall live. You see, the oppression that comes to everyone, the actual ultimate freedom from that oppression is not on this earth, it's in heaven, amen? And so it's giving a picture of something that's far more than just a regional ruler that's going to come and square away a few problems. Not speaking of someone who's just going to take care of the basic needs of the Jewish people in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali in the land of the Galilee of the Gentiles. It's talking about something far greater than that. For every warrior's sandal, noisy from the battle, garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and for fire. And so there's this desperate picture of what was coming their way. The Assyrians were on the march. They were already in the north. Ephraim, the northern kingdom, was under siege. Much of it had already been taken. And that same army is heading towards Jerusalem where Isaiah writes from along with Jeremiah. And so during this time, Israel was in trouble. The the world was a mess. And sometimes we read these words, it, it is not a far stretch for us to look at our own day and time and say, what's the answer today? What's going to free us from the insanity that's going on in our political process? Well, what, what's going what's to come our way that's going to relieve us from the weight and from the, abur- from the burden that most of us feel? And it almost doesn't matter in, in what area of our country you live in. There, there is an oppression, there's a weight, there's a sense that politically and economically things are not okay, even though they're okay compared to the rest of the world. But during that day and time, there was a pervasive sense of, of impending doom. There was a weight that hung over the Jewish people. And I think to some degree, when you look at the history of the world, there has always been a weight hanging over all people at all times. God has chosen to leave this world uh, in the hands and in the sway to some degree of the wicked one. And he impresses his power fairly regularly, frequently, and often, doesn't he? He has his way in all kinds of things. During this day and time, there was a corrupt political system. There was also a corrupt religious system. There was a corrupt ruler There was gross inequity across the board socioeconomically. People were suffering under the hand of Rome. And those who seemingly got ahead were the people who took advantage of other people. Sound like any world that you live in? Things haven't changed a whole lot. We still live in a world that largely rewards people for taking advantage of others. And that's not saying that everyone who does well has taken advantage of others. But there is a general system that's in play in the world that does reward sometimes that inequity. There was very little sense of security during that time. Situational ethics, moral relativity were absolutely the way of the world at that time. And they are still the way of the world. People choose what is right and wrong based on how they feel about what it is that they're thinking about, generally speaking. It is really the church that steps in and says, no, there is actually 
a moral reality that God established, and that's the one we live by. But the number of people that are you know, under that complete understanding are getting seemingly fewer and fewer. The church in the United States of America stopped growing about 20 years ago. We've kind of leveled out. Some of the church is shrinking, contracting. Some of it still continues to grow a little bit. But by and large, people are less Christian than they were 50 years ago. People live lives that are apart from God more than they live close to God. In fact, church attendance itself is on the decline. That was true then. People were becoming irreligious. They didn't want to have anything to do with God. They wanted to do what put them at ease with their circumstance. That was the day that the Hebrew prophet Isaiah lived in. And as you look at that world, it was an interesting world because it was a very tiny world. It remains a tiny world. When you travel to Israel, what you can't see in this particular map is just out of the bottom of that map is the Red Sea and Egypt. And in fact, if you were to go today to what we would call the Gaza Strip, this area that's been given over by Israel uh, back to the Palestinian control, the Gaza Strip stretches from, from just south of Jerusalem, actually, about 35 miles, down to the border with Egypt. And so Israel inhabits this very tiny sliver of land that has in the north the Assyrians and in the south the Egyptians. And on the east of them, the Edomites, the Midianites, the Gasherites, these people that are the sworn enemies, if you will, of the nation Israel. And so during that time, this little tiny area that is around the Sea of Galilee, that little freshwater lake, smaller than our Lake Tahoe here in California. So it's not like when we see the Sea of Galilee, where it's like, oh, this great big body of water. If you had a really fast boat, you could make it from one side to the other in a few minutes. So Israel's locked into this land, and it's trapped, in essence, in a socio-political and economic climate that has very little opportunity to get much better anytime soon. And their enemies are on their doorstep in the north. Matter of fact, 10 of the 12 tribes are already under siege. Jerusalem itself is being knocked on the door. They are basically sequestered inside of the city. So when you think about this, Jesus would go exactly to that region this one little place that if you hopped in a car, you could drive from one side of Israel to the other in less than an hour. If you hopped in a car, you could drive from one end of the country to the other end of the country in about four hours. This little sliver of land that is only about maybe 200 square miles. That is where the Hebrew prophet is going to be born. That's where he's going to go minister. And so as we think on this, it describes really kind of our world still to this day. We're surrounded by enemies. In case you have noticed, 
we are not horribly popular, even in our own country, as Bible-believing Christians. Amen? You can leave the conservative part out of it. Just people who actually believe that the Bible is God's word, we are getting fewer in number. And we are surrounded by people who think we are the problem. Amen? Talk to most people, they'll tell you that, especially a guy like me, I am a white, evangelical, Christian pastor. That's like, you know, it's like, put the X on me. Now, I don't say that to shame anyone, but it's true. It's mind-boggling. Why? What did I do? Well, the only thing I've actually done is actually believe that God's word is true and teach it as truth. But I get hate mail like you can't imagine for doing that one thing. God's people have always gotten that treatment. That's nothing new. Comes with the territory that we occupy because we stand between the living and the dead. We stand between the truth and the lie. We're the ones that have the answer when other people are looking for it. We know the beginning and the end. And in fact, we're the ones that have confidence that when I take my last breath in this life, it gets really good after that. Amen? So, so we're kind of oddballs in that sense. What does the Lord's word offer to people who are in that situation? I want you to see this, because it's actually really simple. It's found here in these first six or seven verses. Look at the reality of these answers. There's light instead of darkness. There's light instead of darkness. You know, as crazy as the world is, it actually gives me hope that there's still time in the age of grace. I still look at the world, in essence, with a little bit of zeal because I know that God's not done yet. Because I've read the rest of the book, I've read the end of what happens, and I know we haven't gotten there yet, so I have hope for today. There's light in the darkness. That's what was promised to these people. The beauty of this is exactly what Jesus would come along and say in John chapter 8, for I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Amen? You see, this was looking forward even to Jesus' time, and it is still true in our time. It was looking forward to the Messiah, but it's still the answer today. The light of the world is the answer to the world's problems. That's why Jesus could say, love those who do evil things to you, who persecute you. Be merciful if you want to receive mercy. Forgive because you've been forgiven. The reason he could say those things is he was not a citizen of this earth. He was the king of heaven. And he was looking forward to his kingdom. And he was preaching his kingdom. That's why he said, I must be about my father's business. His father's business was bringing the kingdom of God. God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And ultimately taking his children home to heaven. And then bringing that heaven ultimately after the end of days right back here to earth. 
That's why there'll be a new Jerusalem. That's why there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. God's going to square away all of the stuff that we've been dealing with for millennia. But in that time, he was offering light in the midst of darkness. And oh, how we need that right now. I was listening to some of the quotes from the presidential debate last night. It's just like, can anybody be civil to anybody else? It's mind-boggling. Anybody here been around long enough to remember when it would have been an anathema for two presidential candidates to insult one another on national television? And now it's like, that's what you do. It's crazy. It's gotten that bad to where even our greatest leaders, and we're going to see this at the end of this chapter, even those whom we would look to to lead us have themselves become corrupted by the system that they lead. So much so that they can't even speak to each other anymore. A second thing. As we trust in the Lord, there's joy instead of gloom. You see, in a practical sense, they're looking at this going, man, this is, this is horrible. But in the sense of who Christ is in us, that hope that we have in that light that has come, he's basically saying, look, there's all kinds of hope here. That's why Paul could write to the church, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's why he could say that there in Philippians 4. It wasn't because every problem was gone. It's because the problems are small in light of who God is. The problems are earthly. The answer is eternal. And so the coming one, the Messiah who would come, was bringing a different type of relief from those things. There would be freedom instead of oppression. There in verse 4. Isaiah addresses this cause of rejoicing, but they rejoice because God's broken their chains. He set them free. You break the yoke of burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, just like at the battle of Midian. If you don't remember what that was, the children of Israel were completely set free. And he's saying, look, that's how it's going to be when Messiah comes, when you have Christ in your life. You see, we look at this in the rearview mirror. They were looking at it out the windshield. They were staring down the road. We're looking from where we've already come. And so in Christ, we can look at this and we can say, look, I am free. That oppression has been lifted off of me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I live, I now live for him. And no matter what happens, this world can't actually do a thing to me other than kill me. And even that is governed by God. And so ultimately, I'm free from that oppression. Now, I don't relish taking you know, dangerous risks unnecessarily, but I'm also not afraid of them. Because I know in the end, all that can happen is I die. That is a winner for me, okay? Now, People around me will be sad for a while, but you know, as you realize, if your family, if you're sitting there and you're believers, you're going, look, we're going to be separated for what Paul and James call a moment in time or a vapor, a twinkling of an eye, 
or the time it takes mist to disappear, we'll be separated for that much time, but together again in eternity. So even as Paul wrote, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Well, the answer is death doesn't have a sting anymore, and the grave doesn't get the victory anymore. Amen? And so in that sense, we're now totally free from that oppression of even the normal thoughts that other people have. People fear death. It's an awful thing. When you don't know the Lord, and you think that this life is all there is, then you grasp for every moment you can. But when you know the Lord, you're like, hey, could you let me go? I got somewhere to be and someone to see. Amen? You see, you're free from that oppression that other people feel. You have peace instead of war. For every boot of the booted warrior in battle, the tumult of it, the, the New Living Translation says, the cloak that's rolled in blood is burning fuel for fire. It says, look, you're going to cast this stuff off. You're going to use your war garments and your boots for a fire to warm yourself. Anybody here ready for no war ever again? I am. And in a sense, the war with God's already been taken care of. Jesus fought that battle. We are no longer at war with God because of Christ Jesus in us. Amen. But ultimately, the whole world is going to experience that kind of peace. And so he's looking forward. He's saying, look, this is what Messiah will bring. There was a savior for these people. They were looking for Messiah. They were looking for the promised one. They did not see Jesus when he came, but they were looking for him. I've seen him. We've seen him as the church. And so these sin-ravaged people who kept returning, as Paul said, like dogs to their own vomit, there was an answer. And it wasn't religion. It wasn't the, the synagogue. It wasn't the, the church, if you will. The answer was a relationship with the Savior. It was knowing what, whom they would call Messiah personally. And so in that sense, notice what it says. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. You see, the government at that time was actually not on his shoulder yet, but it would be. They were being ruled over. But when Messiah comes, his name will be called Wonderful. And counselor. Sometimes we combine that to say wonderful counselor, which is also true. But he's actually just plain wonderful. And he is the most amazing counselor you'll ever go to. He has the answer for everything. He's mighty God. He is El Shaddai and he's El Gibor. He is the mighty one and he's our hero. Amen. He's the one that's the answer to everything. If you've got a problem, he's the answer. If you need counsel, he's got it. He can give it. He's also the everlasting father. And when we read that, sometimes we look at it like he's just a father for a really long time. Kind of like a super Abraham. That's not what it says. 
It actually is the progenitor of eternity. In other words, he's the father of eternity is a better way to look at it. He's the everlasting father, meaning he is the only one who can bring about an eternal fatherhood to you. He is your father today, yesterday, and forever. He's never been anything less than an amazing father. So if you're here tonight and you haven't had a great father relationship, you have an everlasting father. Amen? He's also the prince of peace. That means he's the emissary or the ruler of or the representative of the kingdom. When someone was a prince of a kingdom, they were typically a representative of that kingdom. They would normally carry the king's signet ring. They would be able to offer treaties and alliances. And they would go about through the region and even outside of the region and take with them the power of the king and his kingdom. They would be a prince. And so the Prince of Peace is the representative of the actual king who is the father. Amen? And so here the Messiah comes. The Jewish people were looking for this kind of prince. One who would represent the father's kingdom and everything in it and have the power to give it. That's who Messiah was. That's who Messiah is. And notice what it says. It actually begins to now say that this one whom they're looking for, the government would be upon his shoulder of the increase of his government. So now it goes backwards to the way it starts. And peace, there will be no end. Isn't our world strange? If you look back at the history of the basically the modern world, Go from about the time that Jesus walked on this earth. Let's just call it the last 2,000 years. There has not been a single 10-year period in that 2,000 years where there was not active warfare on this planet. There hasn't been one single decade of peace. Not one. Ever. And yet... This is talking about permanent peace. There'll be no end to the peace, and there'll be no end to that government that produces that kind of peace. You know where that is, right? It's not here. And it's not with human governors. It's not with human presidents. It's not with human rulers. It's certainly not with human dictators. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom... So it includes the Jewish people, because that's their king and their kingdom in order to establish it with justice and judgment. And from that time forward, even forever, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So this is the child, remember, who was promised in chapter 7, isn't it? It's God with us. It's Emmanuel. It's the one who would be born of a virgin. It's the foretold Messiah. In a very significant way, this child that's being promised, whose government would never end, is exactly the same one that was prophesied of in chapter 7. God with his people, because everything described here is not of this earth. 
None of these things are possible still to this day. With all of our technology, with all of our advancement, with all of our peace treaties, with all of our laws, we have more laws today than ever in the course of human history. We have more people involved in law enforcement and police activities than ever in human history. But we also have more people incarcerated than ever in human history. Figure that one out. We have more rules and more laws to govern more things about more people, and yet we have more people involved in enforcing those rules, those regulations and laws, and more people who fail at them and are incarcerated. You know why that is? Because government of this earth is not the answer. The government of heaven is the answer. Because you will never see peace until you can change the human heart. You're not going to see peace by offering people great living conditions. As good as that is, by the way, which we should still try to do. But that's not the answer. Because people who have been fabulously wealthy with everything you can imagine have still gone to war, have still killed one another, have still taken advantage of one another. Does it ever mind-boggle anybody else in this room when you find out how people who already have everything this world has to offer still lapse into criminal behavior? Because without the Prince of Peace, there's no peace. And without him governing your heart, your heart is wicked and deceitful and desperately so, and who can know it? And so this answer is the child that we know as Emmanuel, God with us. That's why John 3.16 says what it says. That's why God gave us this son. Amen? That's the promise fulfilled, by the way. A a son who is given. A child born to Mary and Joseph, but also a son given by God. A dual nature, God incarnate. The Apostle Paul came to know this child this way. Colossians chapter 1, I'm just going to give you selected verses from chapter 1, but you can look at just the whole of the chapter, and it's all the way from verse 15 to verse 27. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For for it was the Father's goodwill for all the fullness to dwell in him. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to us as saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you read that chapter, you're just going, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. It's the coming Son. It's the one Isaiah had full understanding of what would happen. It's this child who would occupy this place of incredible dignity. The government would literally rest on his shoulders. Now, there's been no world ruler. The largest empire that's ever existed in all of human history was actually the Mongol Empire under Kublai Khan. That's the largest geographical region that was ever conquered by a single ruler. And that was what we would call Eurasia, Europe and Asia for the most part. But never anything greater than that. 
And so no matter who was living where at that time, there's never been a government of the world on the shoulders of anybody. And there especially hasn't been one that's been able to bring peace. Amen? Because Kublai Khan did not do that. He was pretty cruel for the most part. It certainly wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Greeks or the Persians. It wasn't the Medes. It hasn't been us. It's not the UN. The world court hasn't brought world peace, amen? We fought two world wars in the last century. In the last century. There's got to be something else that's in view here. Who is it? What, what kind of child is this one who is promised? Well, he, he is the wonderful or wonder of or most wonderful one who also is a counselor. In other words, if you need to know something, if you need counsel about anything, you can come to this one who is a wonder and get it. You know, one of the things that always amazes me is when I sit down to counsel with people, when I just stick to what the Bible says, I never get myself in trouble. Now, people may not like what I have to say, but I will never have to retract what I've said as long as I keep it to what the Bible says. Why? Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when I share the word, I'm simply sharing the character of Messiah, the character of Jesus. This is what Jesus wants for you. This is how you live these things out. This is what it looks like to be a child of God. And so I leave them then in the hand of mighty God, the omnipotent one. That that means to have complete power, the omnipresent one, the one who is everywhere at all times, the omniscient one, the one who sees absolutely everything. You see, when you know the Savior, you have this mighty God right here, leading, guiding, directing, giving you what you need to know, empowering you for what lies ahead. He will give you every good gift because it comes from his father of lights who's in you may not get all that you ask for but you will get all you need his word promises that paul wrote that to the church of philippi my god shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in christ jesus so whatever you have need of our problem is sometimes we want things that god doesn't want for us Or we want things for others that God doesn't want to give them, so we blame God for not giving us what we've asked him for because those things are not his will. You know, sometimes God withholds good things, doesn't he? Anybody had that experience in your life? I've had God withhold good things. And I've had God give me things that it's like, seriously, that right now? You know, you, you, you sit around and you just think, it's like if we had it to do ourselves, guess how many bad things are coming into our life? Absolutely zero, amen? Very few people are going to go out, you know, boy, I just really wish I could go through some 
absolute heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching trial right now. Probably none of you are thinking that. Oh, I just wish I could go through a time of utter poverty right now. You know, I'm really hoping my home burns to the ground this afternoon. Praise the Lord. No, hallelujah, I just got cancer. No, nobody in their right mind is going to actually ask for those things. And yet, how many of us have lived long enough to go, God knew exactly what he was doing, bringing that incredibly difficult trial into my life at that moment in time because it changed my destiny. It caused me to be something that I needed to be. Caused me to know something I needed to know. Caused me to lean in on God. How many of our trials cause us to just cry out to the mighty God? It's like, God, if you don't move right now, I'm dead. Church, you want mighty God to be on your behalf. And so you need to trust mighty God. You gotta lean on him. He's the eternal father. I said so many of us, we, we have so many broken families in our culture. I, I was actually on the phone today and we were discussing an actual legal problem here at the church. And honestly, let me just be blunt with you. I never thought I would have to ask or answer this question. But what do you do when someone comes to you and wants to be married to somebody, they're asking to do a wedding. But they have been living with someone else as though they were married. There's no certificate of divorce. There's no marriage license. And I was stumped. I was like, I don't know. I never thought of that. You see, because in God's eyes, God's going... You're living together. You're acting like married people. You're married people. But according to the state, there's no marriage license. There's no personal property rights. We do not live in a common law married state. So you can live together all day long. In God's eyes, you're actually married. You've got kids. But as far as the state's concerned, the only thing you can do is go to civil court. You have to try and prove something that God had an answer for. Imagine the kids stuck in that situation. My parents were never married. No, I'm not from a divorced home. My parents didn't actually ever marry each other. I never actually had a father. I had a live-in person who was in our house who decided to leave. You wonder why we have so many people who have father issues. Because they haven't actually had a father. And so we cry out for somebody to come along and fill that void. I need somebody to be my dad. I need someone that the Apostle Paul, right in the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 8, said, For you've not re received the Spirit. Uh, of indentured servitude leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. You see, that's who Messiah is. He's that father you've never had. He, he's that one that you long for. Maybe your, your family is broken. 
That's why Jesus could say, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. You'll never know what that's like with me. And we need that. Deep in our souls is this longing for someone to say, I love you. I will always love you. I will never not love you. No matter what you do and no matter where you go. And so family, he's the eternal father. He's the one that you haven't had. He's the one maybe you don't even know. You can't even explain. You've thought about it in your own heart and in your own mind. And you're like, I don't even know what to do with this. I've made these mistakes in my life, and I don't even know what that looks like. Jesus does. And he wants to step into that situation in your life. And he wants you to know that you have a heavenly father that loves you. And in the peace, after Jesus was resurrected in his post-resurrection experience, he said to his disciples, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives you peace, but my peace. Complete, utter, total peace. The peace that comes, as Paul said there in Romans 5, from being justified by faith. Having peace with God the Father. Never having to worry again. I don't know how many of you grew up in, a, in an environment in church to where you were pretty sure God was going to electrocute you at some point in time. <laughs> that he had some serious issues with the way you lived your life and that the result of that was probably going to be someday it was going to be over because God was just, I, I grew up in kind of that environment. And I remember thinking, man, I know God knows what's going on. And it's just a matter of time before I'm dead. And then I actually understood God's grace and I realized that his grace was always upon me. That he loves me that he put that wrath away in Jesus, that my sins were forgiven, my debt was paid, and that God wasn't any longer looking for my neck because he already had my heart. Amen? Yeah, that kind of peace. You see, that peace transcends all the other stuff. Now, that peace is supernatural peace. And so as you, you look to apply this, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the one that's being told of here, the one that's being prophesied of, you have that wonderful counselor. You have that mighty God. You have that eternal father. You have the prince of peace ruling over your heart, guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. You see, you have those things. And now Isaiah is going to shift. He gives the solution. He says, here's who you need. And now he's going to say, here's why you need him. Here, here's why you need the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Here's why you need Messiah. Here's why you need Emmanuel. Here's why you need the child that has these many names. Verse 8, and the Lord sent word against Jacob 
It's fallen on Israel. For all of the people know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, remember what they've done is they've made allegiances with the Assyrian army. They've made peace treaties with the enemy. They've sold their soul effectively to the devil. They've said, we'd rather have peace with our neighbors than peace with God. And again, peace with your neighbors is not a bad thing. But if you have to sell your soul to get it, it's a really bad thing. Amen? The bricks have fallen down. We'll rebuild with hewn stones. And the sycamores are cut down. We'll replace them with cedars. They're basically boasting that if we make this treaty with the world, it's going to go good for us. And therefore, notice that word, whenever you see therefore, look to see what it's there for. Amen? The Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind. So the Syrians are coming from the north. The Philistines are coming from the south. The Edomites are coming from the east. And they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. In other words, they're, they're like a basking shark raking in plankton. It's just they're going to sweep across the land and everybody's going to get caught in it. For all of his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. You see, God is still a just God. We're going to see that in the next chapter. God is still perfectly just. And so you can either have a relationship that's in freedom by grace and through faith, or you can try and make an allegiance with the enemy. You can try and make peace with the devil. You can attempt to do it your way, or you can have it free God's way. You can be set free God's way, but you can only be set free God's way. You cannot earn your own salvation. You can't set yourself free, in other words. You take his path to freedom, or there is no path to freedom. His hand is stretched out still. Why? Because without Christ, the wrath of God abides on you still. God's hand of wrath. And people don't like this. This is one of those things when I, when I tell people the bad news, before I tell them the good news, look, the bad news is you're a sinner and you need a savior. The bad news is right now, today, without Christ, you're going to perish eternally. The bad news is, the Bible clearly says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one righteous, not none of us. Amen? That's the plain teaching of Scripture. You say, well, not me. I'm good. I said, well, that's great. You're good. But how good are you? Well, I'm better than, and then they name like five people that they know. And I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I've never done that, and I've got this going for me, and oh, by the way, I gave 10 bucks to the United Way last year. It's usually something along those lines. They'll, they'll give you a list of the reasons why they're okay with God. And I'll look at them, and I go, you know, that's really great. That's awesome that you did all those wonderful things. You're still going to hell. And they come on, it's like, ah, you know, come unglued. Look, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. The Bible says, unless you accept Christ as your Savior, you will perish eternally. The wrath of God is still on you. Now, you may not like that it says that. I didn't write it. So if you've got a problem, your problem is actually with God because he did write it. 
Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. So there, there's no other way. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And not a single solitary person comes to the Father but by him. And so this is so important in reading this passage because sometimes we confuse God's delay with God being okay. Did you hear what I just said? Sometimes we confuse God's delay with God being okay. God's not okay with our sin. He's never been okay with our sin. And so God's delay in judgment is actually his mercy and his grace. He's just simply saying, my hand is stretched out. I could take you down right now, but I'm giving you some extra time to repent. I'm giving you time to turn a new leaf, to turn to Messiah, to turn to the Lord Jesus. But notice how this goes. For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. You know, sometimes God gives us a little slap upside the head. It's like, what are you doing, Jeffrey? Now, hopefully, when you get that, you go, Lord, I'm sorry. I needed more than a V8 in that moment. I'm turning to you and I'm repenting. But you have to seek the Lord of hosts. Notice what it says. And therefore the Lord will cut off the head and the tail from Israel. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? If you cut off the head and the tail, there's not much left. The palm branch and the bulrush in one day. This is basically saying, I'm going to make your waters undrinkable and I'm going to take your food supplies. The elder and the honorable, he is the head. And those who are led by them are destroyed. I want you to notice what's being said here. It's taking aim at rancid political leaders and those people who are false prophets. And therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger is not turned away. In other words, God doesn't miss anything. He's seeing every bit of injustice that's going on in the world, and he's saying, unless those people turn to me, there's trouble brewing. There's trouble right here in River City, amen? For those of you who like musicals. And every mouth speaks folly. His anger is not turned away. His hand is outstretched still. So he repeats it. For the wickedness burns his fire, and it shall devour the briars and the thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like smoke rising through the wrath of the Lord of hosts. The land is burned up. This is God saying, look, you got a choice. Either turn to me in repentance, or I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make sure that you know that I mean business. You see, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Notice that it says, because of the wrath of the Lord of hosts that the land is burned up. It doesn't say because of the Assyrians. God's going to use the Assyrians. 
God's used all kinds of things throughout history to get his point across. He's really good at doing that. Amen? The people should be used as fuel for fire. Now, you may not like this passage. I'm not really fond of it myself. No man shall spare his brother. He shall not... He shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. Devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. In other words, it's like he's eating air. And every man shall eat of the flesh of his own arm. This is gross. It's like cannibalism. It's going to be so bad. It's like, man, I'd rather chew on myself than eat air. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh. And it shall be against Judah. So this is where you see the division. Judah's in the south. Ephraim's in the north. The two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And they're actually going to war against each other. They're family. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is again outstretched still. In other words, look, these people that have been leading you are, are false prophets. These people that have been speaking into your life are horrible political leaders who have nothing but their own interests in mind. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. They were godless leaders that were leading the people down a road of carnality. You know, it's amazing to me how many times I I listen to people's stories and they'll tell me that somebody in their life who claimed to be a Christian told them that it was okay to do whatever it was that they were doing. Or that there's a law that says it's legal and thereby it's okay with God. There are a lot of things that are legal with our corrupt government that are not okay with God. Everybody got that? There's all kinds of things that are perfectly legal. That doesn't make them okay with God. And God's saying, look, My hand is still outstretched. I haven't, in other words, he's saying, my character is unchanged. My holiness is unchanged. My righteousness is unchanged. My wrath against those things. Read Romans chapter one. That the wrath of God is actually going to come upon the unrighteous because of these things. And God sends that message in Isaiah's time. He's saying, look, don't play with these things. Don't go down those roads. Don't follow after godless rulers. Don't follow after cultish practices. Just because something is legal does not make it okay with God. He's either going to be the stone that saves or the stone that crushes. He's either going to be your chief cornerstone or he's going to be the stone that will roll over you. There's so many phonies in this world that are selling a a sack of goods. It's mind-boggling to me. And I listen to some of the things that they say, and it's like, are are you kidding me? Even a tertiary reading of your Bible, you would go, that's not true. When someone tells you that you're going to perpetually be of good health because you know the Lord, that's nuts. You need no further proof than the disciples, amen? Not one of them walked on this earth for very long before they were persecuted and ultimately martyred for their faith. So if anybody had faith, I would think it'd be James and Peter and John and Andrew and Matthew, those guys, you know, it'd be kind of high on John, maybe. It was so untrue of John that he spent up to his 90s in a cave imprisoned on the island of Patmos. 
eating God knows what, probably bugs and water. And yet you have people saying, well, if you just have more faith, brother. No, I've watched people with immense faith die horrible deaths from cancer. I've watched it. Don't tell me if you have enough faith, you'll never be sick. That is a lie. It's a lie. And people that tell you anything else are lying to you. People tell you you're going to be wealthy because you know the Lord Jesus. They are lying to you. Because I can take you to countries all over the world that are filled with nothing but poverty-stricken people who love the Lord Jesus. And they have zero chance of ever having any wealth. None. Do they have no faith? Oh, they have absolute faith. They have so much faith that they trust God for a chicken today. To me, that's faith. Faith is not that Bonds is going to have your free-range chicken. That's not faith. Faith is I don't even know where the chicken lives. And I'm hoping the chicken comes by my house and not my neighbor's house. That's faith. And yet there are people in this world who are going to tell you that if you just simply have enough faith that God's going to give you wealth and God's going to give you health. That's a lie. And yet people flock to those churches. They fill the pews. They listen to that trash. They give of their hard-earned income to make it so those same people can fly around this globe in private jets and own multi-million dollar homes. That is not from the Lord. That's what was going on in Israel. There was a ruling class that lived better than everybody else. They didn't live with each other. We're up here, you're down here, and there's a whole lot of dirt in between us. All that to say, God's not playing games. He's just not. God means what he says, says what he means. Why would God judge them? What can we learn? Why would God be so upset? Why, why would God have such a problem with his own chosen people? Now think about this for a minute. And praise God, we're his children by grace and through faith, amen? And so he does deal with us in that grace and that mercy. And so don't worry about it in that sense. But if you want to know where the problem areas that you should probably look at in your life, top of the list, one of the seven things that God hates, by the way, is pride. Pride. Thinking you know better than God. One of the things in this passage that you can see that is absolutely a problem, and I believe for almost every person on this planet, myself included, by the way, is pride. Thinking I know better than God. And so I'll just take care of it myself. I can rebuild myself. I can fix myself. I can provide for my own needs. I don't need Jehovah Rapha to heal me. I do not need Jehovah Jireh to provide for me. I do not need El Gabor to watch over me. I can handle it myself. That's pride. That's us telling God we don't need him. God doesn't like that. God also doesn't like it when we harden our hearts towards him. When we refuse to turn, we refuse to repent, we want to do things our own way. God makes it harder as you harden your heart. Did you know that? God is also the God who hardens our hearts when we harden our heart towards him. And he makes things tougher. Why? Because he loves us. 
And so God is judging the, the chosen people because of the hardness of their heart. A third thing that we can see here is that God, exactly as Hebrews 12 says, chastens those whom he loves. He loves us so much that he's not beyond giving us a spanking. And so when you dabble in things and go places you're not supposed to go, entertain things you're not supposed to entertain, when you hang out where you shouldn't be hanging out, you are setting yourself up for a good old-fashioned whooping. Amen? Now I say that because I love you as well. Not because I want you to get a whooping, but I do want to tell you that if you dabble persistently in the things that God has told you not to do, you're going to get a whooping. God's going to, you know, he, he is not the, well, I'll just give you a timeout. Now, he'll give you a timeout first, maybe two timeouts. Might even give you 10 timeouts. But pretty soon it's going to be, I don't know how many of you grew up in that day and time where you could hear your father unbuckling his belt. I grew up in that day and time. Okay, it was like, and I'm not saying it was right, by the way. But I am saying, it's like, oh, this is going to hurt. You knew it was going to hurt. And especially if you were told to go in the garage. Because the in-the-house beatings were always better than the in-the-garage beatings. There was more swinging room in the garage, right? <laughs> there was furniture in the way in the house, but in the garage, clear shot. Okay, bend over. <laughs> you see, God wants to just be able to speak to you and have you go, you're right, I'm wrong. I'm not going to do that anymore. But first he does the little flick of the nose. Then he does the one forehead. Then he moves to the living room, the garage. And before you know it, it's not good. God knows exactly what to do. And if you don't turn, his hand is outstretched still. Now, maybe for some of you, that's a frightening thing to think on. And to some degree, I hope it is. If you're dabbling in things that you shouldn't be dabbling in, you should absolutely fear the Lord. But if your heart is repentant, then you can count on his love. But if your heart is hard, you can equally count on a whooping. Because he loves you. And so you don't want to put God in that position. So if you're a believer and you dabble in sin, I call it a grace whooping. God removes his blessing. God removes his hand off of you. God removes his spirit's influence in your life. He does all kinds of things to make you understand that. But if you don't know the Lord, then that outstretched hand is still the hand of wrath. It's God's wrath that abides on us forever unless we turn. Church, when we turn to the Savior, when we turn to that child with many names, when we say yes to Jesus, that hand of wrath comes off. It's no longer there anymore. Now, he may remove a blessing. He may still give you a whooping, but the hand of wrath is permanently removed. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? You're no longer under that penalty. But because he loves you, He's still going to correct you. But you don't have to worry about what's going to happen eternally because that was taken care of at the cross. And so I pray there's nobody in that place tonight 
If you are, we're going to have some pastors up front after we close in prayer. All you need to do is invite Christ in and start living your life for him. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that promise of this child that would come. And Lord Jesus, we now know it is you. Lord, you're the promised one. You're, you're the one that came, that gave freedom to the captives. You gave sight to the blind. You gave light to the Gentiles. You, you moved, and in you we have our literal being. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here tonight that does not know you, that before they leave this building, they'd simply come up here and ask one of these pastors to lead them in that prayer of repentance, forgiveness, and salvation placing their faith and hope and trust in you, Jesus, our risen Savior. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Thank you that your hand, though outstretched over the unsaved, is withdrawn over us who love you and walk in your grace. And so, Father, we bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.